Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Popcorn and Compliance, a podcast where, with Jay Rosen, we take a look at movies from the compliance perspective. But before we get to our podcast, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You Would you like to explore some compliance topic? Well, I have founded the Compliance Podcast Network, and I'm looking for new podcasters. If you've wondered how you might start a podcast, please listen to our sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In today's offering, we are joined by Lisa Fine. Lisa is, of course, co-founder and co-host of the Great Women in Compliance podcast, and she, Jay, and myself take a look at the December release Aquaman. Aquaman is a superhero in the DC Universe, and this is his first solo starring role in a movie. I know you will enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and we are back for another episode of Popcorn and Compliance, where, with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, he and I take a look at a movie that interested us to see what we liked about the movie, what perhaps we didn't like, and what compliance lessons might be drawn from it. Today, you're in for a real treat because we have as a special guest, Lisa Fine, one of two podcast broadcasters of Great Women in Compliance. So, Lisa, first of all, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited about this. So, so are we, uh, Lisa. Yes, so are we. So are we. So uh, Aquaman is one of my favorite uh, cartoon characters from the uh, DC universe, so uh, I'm going to start off by uh, telling a little bit about his backstory and then um, go into the movie, which uh, deviated a little bit from his traditional written backstory. And I've got several other resources that we're going to use today, and I cannot commend enough a book I got for Christmas called Anatomy of a Metahuman. And it's actually Batman's secret journal of all of the metahuman superheroes in the DC universe and his notes on how uh, he would fight them if he had to. Uh, but uh, it's an excellent resource for the backstory. So Arthur Curry is the son of an Atlantean queen and lighthouse keeper and has many abilities of the underwater people of Atlantis. He was primarily raised by his father, Tom, as his mother, Atlanta, returned to the oceans when Arthur was still a child. Like his mother, he can comfortably live underwater at any depth and correct can direct the simple minds of sea creatures to do his bidding. He has exhibited great strength, speed, and stamina, as well as extrasensory perception. So with that uh, sort of basic background into it, uh, the movie uh, starts in 1985 when the lighthouse keeper, Thomas Tom Curry, rescues Atlanta, the the princess of the underwater nation Atlantis, uh, the under uh, uh, hidden, lost uh, underwater nation of Atlantis during a storm. They eventually fall in love and have the son, Arthur, who is born with the power to communicate with marine life forms. Atlanta, unfortunately, is forced to abandon her family and return to Atlantis, entrusting to her advisor, uh, Nikitos Vulko, 
the mission of training author. Vulco's under his guidance, author becomes a skilled warrior, but rejects Atlantis, the undersea empire, uh, upon learning that his mother was allegedly executed for having a half-breed son. Uh, in the movie, they uh, start a side plot where Arthur confronts a group of pirates attempting to hijack a Russian naval nuclear submarine. He kills their leader, Jesse Kane, or at least Jesse dies during the confrontation. And uh, Jesse's son, David, uh, vows revenge on uh, Aquaman or uh, uh, Arthur. <clears throat> David targets Atlantis as at the behest of Orm, Arthur's younger half brother brother and and Atlantis's incumbent monarch who uses the attack as a pretext to declare war on the surface world um, Arthur uh, is uh, one of the other kings of Atlantis or of the underwater world uh, Nereus um, sends her daughter Mira his daughter rather Mira to uh, ask Arthur for help. Arthur accompanies Mirror uh, after having had a rendezvous with Volkov, Volkov, I'm sorry, Volko, uh, who urges Arthur to find the trident of Atlan, a magic artifact that once belonged to Atlantis' first ruler, and with this he can reclaim his rightful place as the king. They are ambushed on the way, but Arthur escapes. Uh, Arthur um, is then captured by Orm. Uh, he's not tortured, but he is not treated particularly well. He is offered the opportunity to leave Atlantis forever, but Arthur then challenges Orm to a duel in a ring of underwater lava. It's a very spectacular scene in the movie. Orm gains the upper hand, but Mira comes back to rescue Arthur before Orm can kill him. From there, they travel to the Sahara Desert, where the trident was for forged, and unlock a holographic message that leads them to Sicily, and at Sicily, they retrieve the Trident's coordinates. Um, the, um, David Kane, the uh, son of the uh, deceased Jesse Kane, uh, has been given a special suit of armor with which uh, he can fight uh, Arthur as Aquaman. Um, and David Kane rechristens himself as the Black Manta. And they have a spectacular fight scene uh, in Sicily, and uh, Kane is, uh, or Black Manta, is eventually thrown off a cliff uh, by Arthur. Uh, of course, that since this is the 2018 movies, it's clear he's not going to die because how else would we have a sequel? Um, so then uh, Arthur and Mira return and have a just huge fight with not only Orm, but his armies and his own, uh, Arthur has his own armies uh, backing him. The kingdom of the crustaceans uh, are on his side. The underwater scenes, uh, I found to just be spectacular. Uh, I'm going to talk about those and some of my lessons learned. Jay, did you have uh, any insights from your insider Hollywood perspective? Thanks, Tom. Um, what I wanted to look at, uh, just a little nuts and bolts and some money, um, if you look at the DC Extended Universe, um, they've made approximately $1.9 billion globally, and that's starting with the first movie, Man of Steel. So it's not taking into account the first Batman trilogy or anything that was done earlier with Tim Burton. Now, if you look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe, 
and that's with uh, starting with uh, Thor and Iron Man that originally came out from Paramount. Uh, in the same space of time, they've done almost $6.9 billion. So I think one of the key things for the DC universe is to come up with the appropriate tone. And with Marvel having somebody running that company, having the vision and really um, you know, articulating that vision and having the whole universe go in the same way, I think Aquaman is a real success for Warner Brothers in DC. They totally hit it out of the park. And one of the things that I just love is Aquaman just looks like he's having such a great time shooting this movie and if you go back he was in game of thrones um he's a writer he's a director and i think you know it shows the foresight when they brought him in originally to be part of um i think it was man of steel back in 13 so it's almost six years ago to have thrown the dice on a guy like this who was really kind of unknown prior to his game of thrones work I think it's just wonderful casting, and I just appreciate the joy he had in playing Aquaman every moment that he was up on the screen. Uh, another thing I really like is, uh, you know, when you take somebody like Nicole Kidman, who really is known for doing more serious movies, to bring her in to the comic book world and to have her play uh, Atlanta, uh, again, another great inspired piece of casting. So from the screenwriter perspective, or at least the story arc perspective, this is um, Hero Takes a Journey. And here, Arthur is the hero. There's some great scenes where he starts off as sort of the anti-hero, or perhaps you've characterized it uh, even better, Jay, that uh, he's in on uh, not only the, the, the secret, but he's in on the joke. And uh, he plays a pretty uh, strong anti-hero uh, to start the movie. And uh, certainly is uh, would tip back a few with the lads, so uh, that was fun fun to see. But he clearly grows in this. Uh, he clearly becomes more responsible. He uh, does have some setbacks. He is captured by Orm. Uh, he is nearly killed in the uh, Ring of Lava, uh, but he does uh, prevail at the end. He of course finds the um, not magical person as in Obi Wan Kenobi, but the magical Triton. So uh, that uh, Joseph Campbell gets a nod from me uh, as well. So, uh, Lisa, anything about the uh, the movie or the story that uh, struck you? Well, a couple of things. Um, I think it obviously looked like Jason Momoa was having a blast. And I thought a lot of the movie was really fun. Um, you were talking, Jay, about DC Universe and the Marvel Universe. I generally am a DC for TV buff versus a um, Marvel for movies. But I think that they did a really good job in making this one interesting and fun. And I know, and, and visually, you know, a lot of fun and a really good cast. I did feel like throughout it, there was almost, uh, you know, a lot of, almost some, some cliches where, you know, and I think there were some twists early on in the movie that I thought, oh, this will happen. And it seemed to follow somewhat of that. But Again, I have to remember that it's more of the origin story. So this, these aren't twists as much if you're, you know, really a true fan or part of that universe. So I wanted to, uh, to maybe move over to some compliance lessons that we might be able to garner on uh, from this movie, and and I want to take a little bit different directions and not take my compliance lessons learned from the the storyline, but really from the movie itself and actually uh, even post-production into the marketing 
because I thought that it had some interesting lessons that the compliance practitioner could incorporate into the into a, a best practice compliance program. So number one, uh, Jay mentioned the financial success of the movie. Uh, it's been uh, hugely successful, both nationally uh, and uh, domestically and internationally. And that was um, had a couple of components that have been noted by the commentators. One was the uh, heavy use of social media by the studio to not only promote but hype the film. They announced this movie, really, or its coming out party, was at Comic-Con. And they had uh, a large cast from Comic-Con present. Uh, and then they also um, had t- uh, trailers, uh, first teasers and then trailers for Comic-Con. Uh, or rather, they were premiered at Comic-Con. So you had, um, and this was in March 2017, uh, certainly a full year plus before the domestic release. And it created a buzz. And it got me thinking, uh, Jay and Lisa, that uh, you can communicate compliance in a variety of ways. Certainly kind of getting out and creating a little bit of buzz. That's not something that compliance practitioners would typically think about. But um, maybe take your compliance team uh, on the road. Uh, maybe you create some sort of videos or other multimedia shows that you can uh, market or sell or use as trailers. Uh, there's obviously uh, professional production companies, both in film and audio, that can uh, help you with this. So that was sort of one. Uh, number two was uh, along the lines of marketing. They did a worldwide promotion tour. Now, that's not uncommon uh, for certainly uh, this kind of uh, rollout of a movie, but they took the cast out. And that really drove home the message for me that you've got to get out of the ivory tower. You've got to get out and meet your people. You've got to get out and sell yourself and your compliance program. So that was number two. And then if I could move into the uh, technical aspects a little bit, uh, no tracking shots for this this movie for me to talk about, Jay, but um, Industrial Light and Magic, one of my favorite FX uh, uh, shops in Hollywood. It's been around since literally since Star Wars, founded uh, by George Lucas uh, to do the special effects shots for the original Star Wars movies back in the mid-70s. And here, what struck me, guys, was the crispness of the underwater scenes. Uh, I just was blown away by that. Uh, so that was sort of special effect number one. But the other thing that I really noticed was everybody's hair flow. Now, Jason Momoa has a huge mane of hair. So that's going to flow wherever he's in. And, of course, Nicole Kidman is uh, well-stoked and well-stocked with a huge mane of red hair as well. But what Director Jason Wu wanted he, is he wanted full hair movement with the body movements. And typically in underwater scenes previously, they had used a technique called strand movements where part of the hair would move. But the director Wu, he wanted individual hair movements. So ILM had literally had to create that special effect, uh, making each hair on their uh, actors' heads of course, <laughs> digitally uh, move uh, via computer program. And that really drove home the message for me, for the compliance practitioner, that something may be new, something may be high risk, something may be unusual. That doesn't mean you can't do it. It may mean you have to spend more time figuring out how to manage that risk. 
Simply because something's high risk doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means you have to manage that risk higher. And that really, um, you know, I love special effects. I always look at the uh, first thing I look for is in the Oscar nominations, which came out yesterday, is the technical Oscars to see who's going to be nominated for special effects. And I thought ILM just knocked this one out of the park on the underwater scenes. And if I could do a little inside Hollywood, Jay, I would just throw in that there are 150 excuse me, 450 separate shots done by LM that are part of this movie. So those are my three key compliance takeaways. So I'd just like to piggyback, Tom, on the special effects. Um, every once in a while, I, I bring up some of the past films I worked on, and one of the things I worked at Warner Brothers was called The Perfect Storm. And back then, this was from uh, 1998 to 2000, and the big challenge that ILM had was to create a realistic wave uh, that was, you know, all done in post-production on green screens. And, and that's really the shot that sells the movie of the boat, the Andrea Gale, going up into that wave and getting tossed. And whether it's ILM doing it, Pixar or Weta, you know, down in um, New Zealand that did all the work on the... Um, the Hobbit movies, these artists are traditionally challenged. And to your point, Tom, they create something that doesn't exist. And the majority of the special effects shots that we see now, we're not even aware of them in movies because they're doing things like replacing an actor or changing from day to night. So while that attention to detail and the flowing hair is important, to your point, these special effects guys just, you know, constantly uh are creating new worlds and it's amazing to see what they come up with and you know uh it's it's just really a pleasure to watch so do you have some compliance takeaways jay do i have compliance takeaways i i think that um what you need to what i would take away from aquaman is that uh when you are on the journey uh, you always have to remember from where you came. And I think at times uh, Arthur was not sure whether or not he was on the right path, but he understood that he came from two worlds, from the world of the sea and from the world of uh, the earth. And by taking the best of both those worlds, he uh, was able to succeed. And I think if we do that and look at it from an ethics and compliance uh, perspective, that there is just no one way to uh, proceed going forward. And in ethics and compliance, I think each of us borrow from the different disciplines that we see in our companies. So whether it's HR or whether it's legal or whether it's operations, we have to remember that we come from all those backgrounds. And if we can kind of take the best of each of those, we can be put on the right path like Arthur has. Lisa, do you have some uh, compliance lessons learned for us? I do. And in full disclosure, I, I saw the movie after I knew I was talking with you all about it. So I'm watching it, you know, really thinking about my compliance takeaways. And my major one was looking at Atlantis and King Orm. I'm, I was thinking, this is run very poorly. And I don't think anybody is going to be able to help this from an ethics and compliance standpoint. You're talking when you think about tone from the top. 
you, you don't have that. You don't, you have a, a, a situation where some of the most senior people have to go out and find non-traditional ways to, you know, solve the, the, the overreaching and overarching ambition of someone who is in charge. And there's no you know easy way to handle that given the way, you know, a hero story or an origin story is um, in these types of things. So I was thinking a little bit about, you know, when things go terribly wrong, what do you do when power is unchecked and how, how do you help that? So, you know, thinking creatively and then thinking, well, Mira and others, you know, we had to bring Arthur in. He had to go through his journey, but this was the solution to solving what the problems were there. Um, you know, from, from a women's standpoint, you know, some of the, you wondered at some point, if you're look, thinking about that as the you know, great women in compliance podcaster, I understand that Mira wasn't part of the bloodline, but she seemed tremendously competent as a leader. Um, and I, you know, I just sort of thought a lot about that whenever there was in those scenes when I wasn't being dazzled by everything that was going on. So, um, Perhaps now we could uh, turn to our ratings, and as our listeners know, we rate each movie with a bucket of popcorn. So, uh, Lisa, as you're our guest, do you want to tell us how much popcorn you put in your bucket for Aquaman? Probably three quarters of a bucket. It was better than a half, but I I still thought the story could use a little improvement. Jay Rosen. Not only do I have the big bucket that's overflowing, but when I am leaving the concession stand, I asked for my second bucket at the same time so there would be enough popcorn to feed Mrs. Monitors and Millie and Michaela. So I think it's uh, one uh, box of popcorn overflowing and a sidecar for the rest. (laughs) Well, uh, I am forced to agree with Lisa. I give this uh, movie three quarters of a bucket. Um, I am so jaded now with the quality or lack thereof in Hollywood. Uh, I generally walk out with uh, uh, wiping my brow going, wow, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And uh, this movie didn't, uh, I didn't uh, have that reaction, but but I I agree with your your points, Lisa. I thought the storyline could have been a, a little bit better. Uh, the origin story, I thought, could have been a little bit better. Uh, there were some spectacular scenes, and uh, no doubt on the um, on the uh, special effects scene. Uh, also, given just the um, well, the quality of the other DC Universe movies, uh, I think this one was uh, very high up there compared to some of those Superman movies. So, uh, but that's three positive reviews. So, if you uh, are thinking about Uh, this movie we would certainly all uh, suggest that uh, you have some popcorn and watch this movie perhaps you could uh, garner some compliance lessons from it Um, unfortunately we're near the end of our time but Lisa as our guest do you want to uh, take us home I will take us home and thank you again so much for having me join you all Uh, this is Lisa Fine for Tom Fox the compliance evangelist and Jay Rosen Mr. Monitor saying it's a wrap for this episode of Popcorn and Compliance Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Popcorn and Compliance, where Jay and I were joined by Lisa Fine, co-founder and co-host of Great Women in Compliance. If you have any questions, you can reach out to Jay at Jay Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll enjoy, join us for our next episode of Popcorn and Compliance. 
Popcorn and Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.